Welcome to episode number two of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanoes. I'm Eric Clemetti from Denison University and Discover Magazine. And I am Janine Krippner of the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program here in Washington, D.C. So this week's episode, we're going to be talking to Mika McKinnon, who will uh, regale us with tales of earthquakes and landslides and all sorts of disasters and what we should be doing. We'll also talk a little bit about the current activity around the planet in terms of volcanoes, like the uh, eruption at Stromboli that happened earlier this month, uh, some lava lake action around the world. We will really start off at first with uh, me talking a little bit about field work. And uh, first, I'll, I'll ask you something, Janine. How would you place the the realm of field work in uh, the world of, of geologists and volcanologists? Ah, it's my most favorite thing ever. I love it so much. So what is it about it that is so appealing to you? It's, it's going out to these volcanoes and looking at what's around you, and you're kind of playing detective trying to figure out what happened in the past. So not only is the landscape beautiful with sometimes these big towering volcanoes, but you see all these different kinds of deposits. So one singular volcano might have lava flows and pyroclastic flows, which are these explosive, dangerous avalanches that are really hot and raced on volcanoes. Or they might have lahar deposits, which are volcanic mud flows, or they might have avalanche or rock slide deposits. So it's piecing together these really complicated histories to try and understand what the volcano did in the past and what it might do in the future. And then there's also the playing around in the mud and in the rocks and camping and being with other geologists and all of that fun stuff too. For a lot of geologists, it's the part of the job that we look forward to. And I was lucky enough uh, about a week and a half ago to be doing some field work on this uh, National Science Foundation project that was looking at the Tumalo Volcanic Center, which is a fairly under-the-radar set of big explosive eruptions that happened sometime before about 100,000 years ago around Bend in Oregon. And Bend, uh, if people are familiar with it, it's now a city of close to 100,000 people. And it's built on these big ashfall and pyroclastic flow deposits from multiple big eruptions that were five to 10 or more cubic kilometers large. So we're talking like Mount St. Helens or even Pinatubo size eruptions that we don't know a lot about. So I was able to go out there and as part of this project, working with um, Adam Kent from Oregon State University, a couple of his students, Jen and Emily, and then my student, Bennett, we went out there, sampled a bunch of stuff, mapped a bunch of stuff, spent a whole day in a quarry in the middle of Bend, uh, looking at outcrops that will soon be buried underground because they're filling it in to build part of the Oregon State Cascades campus. You know, you don't think of just driving down the street and seeing in the middle of town a, I don't know, 10 meter tall wall of pumice, but that's what it was in Bend for part of this uh, Tumalo volcanic system. And it's sort of like one of the things that struck me too is that we did a lot of, you know, hiking around to get to some of the places we we're trying to sample. And there are younger volcanic deposits there from places like South Sister, but also from an area that's known as the Devil's Hills, which are these rhyolite domes that are on the side of South Sister. And they erupted only a few thousand years ago. And the forest floor in some places is littered with like these maybe ping pong ball size chunks of uh, 
pumice or even like what we call bread crust bombs that are a little harder than pumice, but look like they they almost look like pieces of popcorn that have uh, have cracked surfaces from the inside still expanding because it's hot, but the outside is cold. And it was like the forest floor was littered with the, these things that I, you know, walking around, you're thinking, what would have it been like when these domes were erupting? And pumice this size was falling on you five, 10 miles away from the where the eruption was actually happening and how that would affect uh, things today to have anywhere along the Cascades that kind of eruption to happen that even though they might not be some of them, some of the volcanoes aren't particularly close to big, bigger places like Bend, still just having that much material rain out of the sky in a you know, the Devil's Hills were relatively small, maybe a couple cubic kilometers of dome. There's pumice everywhere from these eruptions. Wow. Yeah, I imagine that'd be pretty frightening for a lot of people. I think, yeah, there's just nothing, you know, other than, of course, St. Helens in 1980, there really isn't anything equivalent in the Cascades. Um, and you hike around out there and you just see all the evidence of things that were the equivalent of St. Helens or larger, uh, just sitting around near the surface, which means they couldn't have happened that long ago. I love being a geologist. I'm a volcanologist, but like you, I'm a, I'm a geologist subtype. And so no matter where you go as a geologist, if you're driving down the road and you see rocks along the side of the road, you're seeing not only the rocks, but the processes that formed them and got them there. So when I look at pyroclastic rocks in the field, I have these videos of pyroclastic flows actually racing down volcanoes in my mind at the same time, trying to figure out how that got there. And that's just the, the incredible thing about geology. Even if you don't want to be a geologist, just taking a few classes so you can understand the world around you so much better. When we're in this quarry that was in downtown Bend, where we are probably, you know, one of the mysteries of the Tumalo Volcanic Center is that people aren't confident of where the stuff actually erupted from, like where the vent was, which is disconcerting. Part of it is because there's lots of young basaltic activity from Newberry Volcano that has a sort of paved over a lot of the area. But we're probably, on best estimate, 10 or 15 kilometers from the source of one of these units that it's a big, interpreted right now as a big pyroclastic flow unit. But it's still, it's like 20 meters of pyroclastic flow deposits right down through the middle of uh, Bend. And again, thinking about the size of an eruption that was required to to deposit that much material that far from the potential vent is um, somewhat startling. You've touched on a few really important things there. There's a lot of stuff we can't get to, and a lot of smaller eruptions, which are happening all the time around the world, aren't even saved in the record because they didn't produce enough rock to deposit, or it was washed away by rainwater, especially in countries like Indonesia, where there are high, there's high rainfall, or there's erosion, or you have glaciers that come through and scrape everything off. So, you know, we do a great job of learning what things have done in the past, but there's still a lot that we don't, we can't track. When you're looking back at a volcanic system's history, it is, you know, not to use this analogy too much, but, you know, it's like looking at a book, but having various pages removed and trying to make sense of it all. So why don't we talk a little bit about what some of the stuff that's going on volcanically around the planet. There's a little flurry of at least newsworthy eruptions. And the one that we didn't end up talking about in the last uh, podcast was the eruption at Stromboli, which uh, unfortunately took the life of 
one tourist who was on the volcano at the time. It, yeah, compared to some of these big explosive eruptions we talked about at Raikoke and um, in New Guinea, the um, eruption at Stromboli was a fairly small explosion, but it had the difference of it being in a place Stromboli is a tourist destination. And we ended up having a fatality and injuries related to it because of the fact that this explosion happened uh, fairly unexpectedly. And it kind of highlights some of the dangers of, of being a tourist on a, a active or potentially active volcano. Yeah, and we, we had the same thing happen again. When was it? Friday the 26th? There was an eruption in Indonesia at Tangkuban, Parahu. I might be saying that completely wrong. I apologize. Um, it was a very small eruption, uh, very, very small. But people are on the crater. There are, there are actual buildings and a road up on the crater, so people are right there. So, you know, people like to talk about catastrophic large eruptions, but an eruption doesn't have to be big to be catastrophic. It can have people on the volcano or right below the volcano, and that can make it dangerous. Whereas if you have a huge volcano, volcanic eruption going off somewhere, there might be no one around. A lot of the fatalities that have come from volcanic eruptions have come from volcanoes that had these unexpected eruptions. A lot of the times these eruptions might be triggered by um, steam explosions or are steam explosions, but you get all these projectiles that get shot out of the volcano and like the eruption in 2014 on, at Antake in Japan that killed, I think, over 40 people. Yeah, there, we had a close call with Tamari in, on Tongariro in New Zealand back in 2012. Luckily, you know, was killed, but it was right by the trail. And, you know, the probably the most famous sort of event like this would be the eruption of Galeris that killed the volcanologists that were visiting the volcano on a field trip. You know, when we talk about how, when we talk about how you're going to die in a volcanic eruption, it turns out that a lot of the deaths that happen in these small explosions come from things like blunt force head trauma because of the flying projectiles. So, you know, this is why a lot of the times when you see people hopefully visiting these volcanoes that, you know, a hard hat is not a bad idea. Even if it doesn't look like the volcano is doing anything, you never know. Some of these steam explosions don't have a lot of precursory signs, uh, but can can kill people quite easily because of the, f the flying debris. You know, volcanoes are incredibly stunning, beautiful places, and I intend to keep visiting through my lifetime. But you know, just when you travel to what is to you an exotic place, you look up what are the health restrictions? What should I eat? What should I not drink? Um, do I need to go to the doctor and get any, any shots, any injections before I go? If you're going to a volcano, take with you the health things, the health and safety things you might need. So a flashlight is a really good idea. Um, a N95 face mask in case there's volcanic ash, either through an eruption or through some a lot of wind kicking it up. Take a hard hat. Take good clothes for you, sturdy boots, you know, in case it gets really cold. Volcanoes are often, you know, it's a sharp increase in altitude. It can, the weather can be dangerous. So just be prepared. Um, the guy that was killed on Stromboli was doing nothing wrong. He was not where he shouldn't be. He wasn't doing anything stupid. This was just a bad luck accident. Yeah, so there's there's an inherent risk in visiting these volcanoes, especially ones that are, you know, Stromboli is an active volcano. It's actively erupting. And, you know, I always go back and forth about this sort of tourism because I, I want people to experience 
what they want to experience. If they want to visit an erupting volcano, that's a really cool thing to want to experience. But there's a lot of hazard associated with it. So, you know, another example is, that you might be familiar with is, of course, they do tours, at least I think they still do tours, out to White Island off the coast mm-hmm. of New Zealand, um, uh, the North Island. And I, I had an opportunity to take one of the tours and I turned it down because I just, you know, I, I could not get myself past the idea that I did not think it was a good idea to have like a regular tour that would bring civilians, whatever, non-professionals out to the island because it is a, such a restless area. And it just, just sort of gnawed at me as something that I didn't want to actively support, whatever. It would have been cool to go inside that active um crater of the volcano, but the fact that ability to escape is very limited out at White Island and the ability to, you know, the, the sort of places that you can be safe are very limited. Just, it felt wrong to me. So I didn't do it. That's what it's about, you know, arming yourself with information, um, knowing what the hazards are to you and weighing up that risk for you personally. That's what all of this is about. We're not saying never go to volcanoes. Um, that's not the case. It can be an amazing experience for most people that go. Um, I did go to White Island. I signed the waiver saying if I'm hurt or killed, it's my fault, not theirs. I take full responsibility. And I was out there on this active volcano and it's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's the size of it. It makes you feel so small. And I definitely stood there looking around thinking this could be really, really bad. So you've got to have that information, know what you're getting yourself into and then it's up to you whether or not you take that risk. And if you do, take the things with you to keep yourself safe if you can. And, you know, and if it's a really big explosive eruption, there's going to be nothing that's going to keep you safe. But go knowing that. I think a theme for this podcast episode is that we want everyone to stay alive. We do. <laughs> there's a lot of hazards out there and you just need to be sensible about it. Be aware enough of what you are doing to not do something that is going to put your life in peril. So, you know, this could be going up and visiting a volcano that might potentially have an explosion to, you know, don't go on the other side of the fence at the Grand Canyon to get a really good selfie. Be sensible with your decisions because the, the risks there are real. We are lulled into the sense that things are safer than they might actually be a lot of the time because of the fact that people aren't just like constantly dying uh, every day in some of these locations. Yeah. There's risk in everything we do. People are hurt and killed crossing the street. I personally absolutely hate driving. I do not feel safe driving. So I really minimize (laughs) my exposure to that hazard. It's all about having the right information and then making good decisions and preparing yourself. And I even wrote a blog post Um, So you want to visit a volcano last week. And I listed the things that I consider before I go to a volcano. It's not a list of every single thing, but you know, it's, it's advice that I've heard from colleagues, advice that I've heard from other volcanologists, advice, uh, you know, things I've learned the hard way going into the field. So what else is uh, rumbling volcanically out there? We have 50 ongoing eruptions. So all of this information is coming from the global, sorry, the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program or GVP. Um, the weekly activity, the highlights, not all of it, but the highlights for the week are put together by Sally Kun Senate. She works here and with USGS as well. And she does an incredible job sifting through 
so much information so that she can summarize the changes. So shout out to Sally. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate you. Um, we have 50 ongoing eruptions around the world at the moment and the countries um, that we have these active volcanoes in, we have placed volcanoes in Peru, Mexico, Indonesia, Japan, Ecuador, Costa Rica, uh, Russia, India with Barren Island, the Congo, the Philippines, uh, a couple of years, the Saunders Island, which is, I believe, a UK island, uh, Chile, Guatemala, Italy, Australia with Heard Island, Antarctica, Ethiopia, Vanuatu, Tanzania. There are a whole bunch of countries with active volcanoes. And we discussed Stromboli with that explosive eruption that produced an ash plume, several explosions, and a pyroclastic flow. We had the last 24 hours, Etna produced um, an increase in activity and several lava flows. There was also a larger eruption at Ubinas in Peru, which sent an ash plume up to 9.5 kilometers, um, as well as others too. So around the world, we have active lava lakes, we have lava flows, we have um, pyroclastic flows, we have explosions that throw out hot rocks at very high velocity away from the volcanoes. And we have a lot of small ash plume, occasional puffing type eruptions as well. So there's a lot of activity out there. The the lava lakes are one of them is that we have, of course, the return. It was, I think, a fairly brief return before it turned into a more of a spatter cone than a lava lake. But there's a lava lake that was spotted uh, deep in the crater at Shishaldin in Alaska, which would be the, f- the first lava lake in the U.S. since uh, the two on Kilauea uh, met their demise mm-hmm. last summer during the eruption. Um, And then earlier this year, there was the lava lake that was spotted, Michael, Mount Michael, in um, the South Sandwich Islands. You know, lava lakes, people make a big deal out of them. And I understand why, because it's cool to think that there's a lake full of lava. I want to see one so bad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've never I've never looked down into one. I have seen the spatter of one, namely the one at the summit of Kilauea right before the eruption in 2018. I could we could see lava spattering out of it, but I've never actually like stood near the edge of one. There's not very many. There's usually about a half dozen to, you know, 10 maybe active lava lakes on the planet at at least these days at any given time, you know, I can think of ones that occur at like Erebus in Antarctica or um, near Agongo in the Congo. We have uh, Erta'ale, Erebus, Masaya in Nicaragua, near Agongo in the Congo, Yasur and Ambram. And we did have Kilauea. Yep. And, you know, occasionally there's been lava lakes. I remember in 2004, I was in Chile, and we could see the glow from the lava lake that had been sitting in Villarica, uh, in the crater of Villarica. So these things, you know, what you want to picture is kind of like the idea that there's enough enough magma in the system that it's filling up all the way up to the conduit. We're not spilling outward, but we have enough replenishment of hot magma to keep it the surface molten that allows you to develop this sort of lake-like thing where it is molten lava exposed at the surface for some amount of time. It might not be, you know, might be only for days or weeks, or it might be f- like in the case of Kilauea for decades. But um, they're they're cool features in terms of volcanic hazards. They're they're rarely a, a hazardous feature. Only a few times, you know, I can think of the examples in. Uh, from near Gongo, I believe, where a lava lake spilled over and it caused a, a lava flow that was, you know, 
somewhat superheated because it had been you know in the lava lake. You had a large volume of lava, um, and that caused, I believe, might have actually produced some fatalities. Yeah. Beyond that, lava lakes, I think a lot of the time are just just really cool features to look at. The sort of churning surface of a uh, uh, actual big vat of molten rock. They are there, and. I mean, I guess when you look at all of the ash plumes and lava flows and things like that we have going around the world, they are one of the more rare styles, but they are happening. Um, And they're happening basically all the time. And with this huge amount of volcanic eruption activity around the world, we also have a huge amount of earthquake activity around the world that I think most people are really not aware of. So we have this so-called, and Eric and I both have strong feelings about this, the ring of fire which is this interconnected zone thing of different tectonic plates that's in a squished shape that have a lot of te- active tectonic boundaries. And the, the figure I looked up today is about 90% of earthquakes on the world and about 75% of volcanic eruptions are in this zone. So there's a huge overlap of earthquakes and volcanoes. And since we're going to talk today about whether or not earthquakes trigger eruptions, because this is something we saw coming up with the Ridgecrest earthquake that happened a few weeks ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Ring of Fire is a good Johnny Cash song. I, I get that song stuck in my head all the time. Yet as a geologic thing, I am less of a fan of it. And in fact, you know, I think it is, in my mind, the ring of fire is something that is is evocative to think about. And it is, describes to some degree, general distribution of volcanoes and earthquakes. It is not a singular thing mm-hmm. that behaves together. So the ring of fire is not... Everything on the Ring of Fire is not in direct communication with everything else on the Ring of Fire. I find it it has reached a point of overuse where it is no longer something that is um, provides much information to the to the public as they read about a volcano that erupted, and that volcano happens to be on the Ring of Fire. It's like a significant portion of the planet is probably somewhat near the ring of fire. Yep. Yeah. The the only use I see in that term is that if you live in the so-called ring of fire, depending on where you are, everything, everywhere is different. There's a lot of variation, but you should really be looking into, do you have a seismic hazard? Are you at risk of experiencing an earthquake where you live? And do you have volcanoes nearby? You know, chances are if a lot of these areas have both. But that doesn't mean that they are connected. And that's doubly so, that if something happens on the Ring of Fire, there's no evidence that anyone has seen to say that there is a a triggering mechanism that if an earthquake happens on one part of the Ring of Fire, it means that we are more likely to have one on some other part far away because somehow they're connected and that whatever, the energy will be transferred in such a fashion, or that an earthquake, let's say in Chile, is going to trigger volcanic eruptions in Japan just because they're both on the ring of fire. And that's, you know, that's one of these common misconceptions you run into a lot. Yeah. And um, Lucy Jones was doing a lot of great work trying to explain this during the Ridgecrest earthquake. She's talking about how there's only a certain range away from the fault that it might Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not liking using the word trigger right now, but it might trigger another fault to become active. So with the Ridgecrest earthquake, people were worried about Yellowstone going off, which is not a concern. 
Uh, people were worried about the COSO volcanic field, which is right there going off. Um, and people were worried about the San Andreas going off. And not one of those was really – I wasn't worried about any of those. I don't think any geologists were. But it's a huge misconception. So we can talk about it. You know, it's there's a lot of rock between the Ridgecrest earthquake location and Yellowstone. So you have these huge, really deep magmatic systems and then these shallow faults many, 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 many miles away. Um, naturally, people will gravitate towards being concerned about there being a link between them. But there's very, there is some evidence that sometimes earthquakes might trigger eruptions but the general consensus, and we do need more research, but the general consensus is, is that if, if an earthquake does result in an eruption at a volcano somewhere nearby, the eruption was probably ready to go anyway. I think the important point there, too, is that it's it's volcanoes that are relatively nearby. We're not talking like volcano thousands and thousands of kilometers away. I think one of the big issues here, too, is just the sense of, of scale of our planet that is sometimes hard to grasp, where an earthquake in California might feel like it could be near something like Yellowstone because they're both out west. But those those two places are far apart. And the energy that is released in the earthquake gets dissipated quickly enough that you know Yellowstone will feel the shaking. That's why seismometers work, where you can detect earthquakes on the other side of the planet, because that shaking does get transferred over long distances, but it's shaking that is, you know, detectable by instruments only. So you're not going to, even if, let's say, a volcano far away was poised for eruption, it's not like that's going to cause it to erupt because there's just not enough. There's more local things that are likely to trigger an eruption or something internal to the volcano that will trigger the eruption rather than some distant large earthquake. So, you know, looking at Yellowstone, yeah, no, Yellowstone's not going to erupt because there's an earthquake in California. Or even closer features like the Coso Volcanic Field. A lot of people aren't familiar with that. It's a series of, there's lava rhyolite domes and basaltic cinder cones that are in sort of East Central California that are tens of thousands of years old on the whole and and older, but they are a place where the U.S. Navy has a big geothermal plant. And there's very little evidence that this is a place that is likely in a state where an eruption is going to be happening anytime in the near future. And these places have a lot of earthquakes because geothermal energy production can generate lots of tiny earthquakes. We see this at Coso. We see this at Clear Lake in uh, near San Francisco. Just because a volcano is near where an earthquake happened, it doesn't mean that that earthquake is going to cause it to come back to life. No, and, and there, exactly. Um, there are even earthquakes that happen pretty much in or on near volcanoes, under volcanoes, that also doesn't mean the volcano is going to erupt. So Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens are two good examples of volcanoes that pretty frequently have these seismic swarms, which is just a higher number of earthquakes that is happening somewhere on the volcano. But volcanoes are also usually often in areas with a lot of faults. So there happened to be a seismic swarm at Mount Hood within a short distance after the Ridgecrest earthquake, but it was a fault near the volcano that was moving or shuffling around. It wasn't a magma body moving under the volcano. And whether or not that fault was moving in any relation to the Ridgecrest earthquake is a tenuous connection at best. So I think 
really, when it comes down to it, large earthquakes near volcanoes, the hazard is more likely to be that there could be landslides triggered by the earthquake on steep, poorly constructed things like volcanoes, rather than an eruption happening directly following something like a large earthquake. Because, you know, volcanoes, whatever, they spend most of their life not erupting. So the hazards we need to look at in places that have volcanoes and earthquakes are more likely going to be things like other earthquakes following aftershocks or big landslides that are coming in the sort of steep mountainous terrain that might be near those volcanoes. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's perfectly normal for us as humans to be making these links between these processes. And it's, great to have questions and to be curious um, just know where to go for the for the good information there are people out there that are actively lying about these things I don't know what for um, but there are great places you can go for information like iris has um, a lot of educational materials uh, UNAVCO a lot of seismic information USGS has the volcano and earthquake information as well um, and there are a lot of scientists on Twitter working really hard to get good information out there. So during the Ridge Crest earthquake, I was watching accounts like Susan Huff, Lucy Jones, Wendy Bohan, Sarah McBride, Ken Hudnut. There are a lot of great social scientists and seismologists out there doing a lot of work to make sure people can get the right information. And when um, inf- concerns about the Coso volcanic field started kicking up, Andy Frasetto at Iris was posting a great thread about what the Corso volcanic field actually was and what it did last. So there are a lot of places to get good, vetted, trustworthy information out there. As Mike Poland in the last podcast reminded us, there is no grand conspiracy of the USGS or anyone hiding information from the public. Uh, so, you know, all of the conspiracy theories about volcanoes and earthquakes and the connection, take them with a uh, elephant-sized grain of salt uh, when you hear those sorts of rumors floating around and turn to some of these vetted uh, vetted sources. You know, we'll have links to a lot of these on the uh, page for this podcast. So you can keep that bookmark so you can turn to the sources of information that don't have some strange and unknown agenda uh, to why they're trying to spread some of these uh, rumors rather than the actual, hopefully, facts of the event in question. Yeah. You know, as, as these events are unfolding, whether it's an earthquake or an eruption, we're learning as it's happening. We are constantly getting more information, constantly getting more data. Um, as time goes on, we get a better picture of what has happened or what is happening. So we can give updates with that as well. Um, and by we, of course, um, when it's an eruption, I always mean the official observatory. So in the US, USGS. And there are those of us that can help share that information and make sure people can understand it. So, you know, if, if there were people out there doing things for the wrong reasons, Good luck getting away from it. Like the Cascades Volcano Observatory, for an example, has what, 70 to 80 scientists? There is no way, <laughs> no way that you'd get that many people in on a conspiracy with with someone not leaking something or, you know, it's, it just doesn't work when you look at it, as Mike Poland was saying. All right. So I think at this point, we're going to take a little break. And when we get back, we'll talk to Mika McKinnon, who will continue our discussion about... Last night I dreamt Victoria drowned in the ocean The ride of a lifetime The rites of spring of a lifetime The ride of a lifetime The 
are very lucky to have Mika McKinnon with us. Um, Mika is fantastic. I've got in touch with her through the science communication we both do on Twitter. And it's usually me contacting Mika going, what do I say about this? Please help me. So Mika has been a wonderful person in my life. And I finally got to meet her this year in person. And I was looking up, Mika, I was looking up some of the work you do this morning um, because I was going to be introducing you. And so far, I've got written down for, for what you are and what you do, physicist, geophysicist, disaster researcher, and science writer. Is that about right? Yes, indeed. And that science writer can get quite broad. Sometimes it even includes doing science and fiction. So what have you done with that? Oh, so many things. In terms of volcanoes, I actually got to do uh, a consult for Star Trek Discovery about how could you artificially trigger an eruption and have it look like a naturally occurring event, which is a very fun problem to try and figure out what could you plausibly do and how would it fit into the storyline? Wow. And very relevant for our podcast episode on triggering. <laughs> <laughs> and so you do a lot of work. You specialize in disasters. So you're a master of disasters, yeah. I guess, as well as tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides. And you're currently working with the SETI Institute. Yeah, I'm looking actually for that one at landslides on asteroids. So we know a lot about how to do hazard assessments here on Earth. But in space, traditionally, you've done all your hazard assessment up front and then launched your spacecraft. And the minute you launch it tells you where it's going to land. And if you see a boulder along the way, tough luck, your spacecraft is going to land on that boulder. But more recently, we've been having spacecraft that go into orbit around an asteroid or a comet have the opportunity to do more detailed up-close mapping and then try and land and do a sample return mission or to do on-surface science of some variety. So I'm part of a team that's trying to figure out how to take these concepts of hazard mapping from the terrestrial world and put them into... Um, the tool sets that they use in space. That is so cool. And how did you get to this point? Uh, Twitter. Um, <laughs> how many amazing things happen because you get to talk to scientists all over the world doing all sorts of different things. So my career looks very confusing from the outside, but it actually has this common thread of my job is to be curious and excited in public. And by doing that, it gives other people permission to be curious and excited. Everybody starts off curious as little teeny tiny babies. They need to learn everything about the world from what are fingers and toes up through when I drop something, it falls. But somewhere along the way, we often teach people to be embarrassed about not knowing, to try and cover it up or hide it or not admit that something is new. And I think that's really sad. I think it's really fun and exciting to learn new things. And when it comes to something like disasters, learning new things and asking up when you don't understand something, is not just interesting, it's also life safety. If I move somewhere new and I'm dealing with a different set of disasters than I grew up with, I better learn about them. Otherwise, I I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to react. So uh, I have a question for you. I, and I hate getting this question, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Is there something, some sort of salient moment or salient Thing that you can point to, because we all have our own specific sort of subfield that we all had to specialize in to become geoscientists. What what got you on the track of what you are, I guess, most, I don't want to say interested in, most trained in that then put you on this road? 
I was a physicist as an undergraduate, and I wanted to do things with space, and I really liked the couple of geoscience classes I'd taken as electives. So I went, all right, cool. I'm going to deal with rocks in space. That's planetary science. And I knew I wanted to come back to Canada. So I looked at literally every single planetary sciences graduate program in the entire country um, and figured out that anything that's outside the solar system is astrophysics and inside the solar system is geophysics. So guess what? I'm doing geophysics. My original research project was looking at volcanoes on Mars and why they're so big. They're hotspot volcanoes. So if you look at volcanoes on Mars, they, in terms of geology, they're almost identical to what we see in Hawaii. We see these great big, huge shield volcanoes. And even though we've never seen a Martian volcano erupt, and none of them have erupted in the entire time humans have been alive, much less looking at Mars, uh, we can make a lot of guesses about what those eruptions would have been like based on the analogy of what's happening now in modern era in Hawaii, which is pretty cool. Um, And I was doing models looking at heating up corn syrup uh, because corn syrup has temperature-dependent viscosity. The more you heat it up, the runnier it gets, just like lava. Uh, But that's about the only thing that corn syrup has in common with lava. And I got really frustrated by realizing I was doing research that was intellectually really interesting, but practically had very little impact on anything. Um, And I did something unusual in grad school, which is I quit my research project, but didn't drop out. And I spent the next six months going, okay, so here I am, I'm taking classes. Apparently this is what I'm doing with my life. And I'm not motivated by the things I thought I was motivated by. Pure curiosity is not enough. So what actually motivates me? And I try going, well, I'm in a geoscience department known for its resources. How about money? Does money motivate me? And the answer was very quickly, no, that's not it. Um, But I did figure out that I want to feel like my my work has made things less bad. I don't even need it to be better. I just need the world to be less bad because I did my job. And that transitioned into disasters of can I figure out some aspect of disaster science that we don't yet understand that will actively make the world better? So I started looking at really, really, really big landslides, catastrophically huge landslides, landslides so big that they behave more like fluids than like solid rocks. And I went through and I did all of this research into it and how do you model them and realized that we could model them with a lot of scientific detail, but then it took a lot of time and a lot of money. Or we could do a really broad strokes rougher analysis and have it be short, fast, cheap, and good enough for policy work. Because if you're trying to figure out a hazard zone and where to put the hospital or the school, you just need to know there's a 10% chance a landslide is going to go there. Just don't build the hospital there. You don't need it any more accurate than that. Uh, And that's what got me into the disaster communication bit of going, okay, it actually turns out We have this huge gap in we know all this amazing science and there's all these policymakers who wish they had enough science to make good decisions. Let's bridge that gap. Let's do that communication in between the two and almost act as a translator 
of, all right, here's enough science for you to make better choices. There is definitely that tendency. I I find that geoscientists, when we come to try to translate the research that's done to policymakers, it's kind of like we we just bring a fire hose with us to give them a drink of water. uh, And that definitely does not help in how people can quickly understand the salient points of the hazard in place. So I, I definitely get what you mean. It's like, we don't, we don't need to have like the perfect model and all of the perfect uh, solutions to these things for po- good policy to be made. Well, it's almost a little bit heartbreaking in that you would think that with all of this publicly funded research, that anyone who works in government would have access to it. Um, but they don't. Often, if you work at a government office and you're trying to develop better policy, you don't have a subscription to all of these academic journals, which is heartbreaking. Um, But I did get the opportunity. I at one point worked for FEMA helping revamp all of the um, science education we give to emergency managers. And when doing that, I realized it's not a question of, hey, you need to know in extreme detail all of the mechanics of what exactly happens with an eruption. But you do need to get across there are different types of volcanoes that produce different types of eruptions, or that a tsunami is more than one wave, or yes, landslides are one of the lower death count disasters, but that's in part because we list landslide deaths, fatalities underneath the triggering event. So if an earthquake triggers landslides and those landslides kill people, those are earthquake-related deaths, not landslide-related deaths. So getting into all of those things was really an interesting perspective of of understanding suddenly how all this science that I knew wasn't getting out there in terms of the science that people who made decisions knew. Mika, I I see you do this really well, um, especially on Twitter and as well as interviews too. And I was following your response to the Ridgecrest earthquake I, I struggle with that name so much. Ridgecrest Earthquake. And you did a fantastic job, really. What did you do? You, you compared it to puppies? <laughs> yes. So Ridgecrest is actually where I first learned how to ride a horse. Um, I, my college roommate was from Ridgecrest. So we go out into the desert and she taught me how to ride a horse bareback. Um, so that was an adventure for me and kind of a strange thing to see all of this media coverage out in the middle of a desert where... The population density is so very, very low, and that's really the only reason there weren't more fatalities from that event. Um, but yeah, so I've I've been experimenting with this idea of trying to talk about why aftershocks happen, that you have an earthquake, and in the Ridgecrest sequence, we had a smaller earthquake, and then a larger earthquake, and then back down to smaller earthquakes. And how can you tell that that first one was a forequake or a normal earthquake? And the answer is, scientifically, you can't. They're the exact same thing. The only reason we can ever tell an earthquake is a forequake is because a bigger event happened later on. You can only tell in retrospect. And the way that I've been thinking about this is it's like having a pile of sleeping puppies. And they're all kind of flopped in together, and everybody is twitching and 
putting their tails out and a paw goes here and there and slowly, slowly settle down. And for the most part, that means if a new puppy flops in the pile, everybody kind of adjusts and gets comfy and then the number of wiggles and twitches will slow down over time. But maybe if you're unlucky, one of those puppy paws will smack out and bop somebody on the nose or in an eye or somewhere else sensitive and it will erupt into a new big spurt of energy. And the way this is kind of like earthquakes is that when a fault moves, that movement sends out energy uh, and it's released and it goes around and, and loads onto all of the faults nearby. And some of them can just take that stress, absorb it, cool, we're now a little bit more on there, but have not yet broken. For some of them, you go over the limit and the fault breaks and ruptures. And that break and rupture is an earthquake. And so now a new one moves and then a new one and they all kind of adjust and move around. Most of the time, it means you've got the big earthquake and then smaller ones. But every now and then, bop the puppy on the nose, great big, huge earthquake happens afterwards as everything erupts again into a lot of chaos, a lot of movement, and then slowly resettles. I like it. <laughs> earthquake puppies. It makes it a little less terrifying. I mean, I wouldn't really want to do this analogy if this had been a, an earthquake that had had fatalities to it, because it's... We were saying before, you have to really think about the interdisciplinary nature of disaster science. It's not just the physics or the geology. It's also the human element is how do we respond? How do we plan? How do we interact with the disaster is a huge chunk of what's going on. And if you don't think about that psychology and sociology, then you're not going to be very effective at dealing with the life safety issues, uh, dealing with how do we take this physical phenomena that happens and make it so it has less impact. So fewer people die, fewer people are hurt. I'm just going to echo that for emphasis is that we need social sciences. It is so important. Um, I followed work by Sarah McBride. She's over at USGS at the moment. And this incredible, like, how do we get people to understand what we're saying? Actually, that's worded wrong. How do we explain something so that we are understood for different audiences? And how are people going to respond to that? So we, if we know this, you know, there's a lot of science we still need to do, but the stuff that we know, how do we use it to help people? And if we don't understand the people side of that, we're not going to get very far. It's always all about people. That there's this concept of science's objective or that it exists in this realm of ultimate truth. And no, everything we do is done by people. So the practice of science is a very human thing. And the, the implications and the applications of science is a very human thing. And if we don't think about that, if we don't work with that, then we're not going to get very far. Yep. Yeah. And I think um, it's, you know, it's great seeing that scientists, you know, the three of us, we have more tools to communicate now. Like I've been following Eric's blog for years <laughs> and it's, it's always been one of the best ways to get good volcano information. And of course, the, the first way is always to go to the official source like USGS um, for volcanoes or for earthquakes we have iris the pacific northwest seismic network for that region um, as well as usgs and unabco but what we can do as communicators is we can add a lot more context to that and we can say words that perhaps the officials cannot say at the time Mika's <laughs> um, really good for that um, which I like. And so there's there's this team effort to make sure that everyone can get the information we're translating it in different ways for everyone. Well, and it's meeting people where they are and what questions they're asking, right? Like it doesn't 
matter what I think needs to be said. If there's a bunch of people who are terrified at 3 a.m. that things are going to go a lot worse, then being able to go, okay, your anxiety is valid. I get why you're feeling that way. Allow me to give you more information and context so you can learn something here and contextualize that anxiety and then decide if it's worth being panicky about. Yes. That after the Ridgecrest earthquake, there are people going, I'm going to sleep under a table. And you're going, you know, I wouldn't take that choice, but I understand why you're there. And that's a valid thing to do. And it's not going to hurt anybody. So, okay, cool. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's, you know, as a communicator and as a researcher, it's not about us. It's about the people who need something from us. And, you know, the, as soon as the Ridgecrest earthquake hit the news, I just sat there waiting. I was like, someone's going to talk about Yellowstone. And it did. There are people preying on those fears, um, trying to scare people about the whole earthquakes triggering volcanoes. Now, in hindsight, we can look back and say what we knew at the time is that it's not going to happen. And it didn't. But no, it's, it's what are people concerned about and what can we do to help? Do you have a feeling about how you thought things unfolded on social media after the earthquakes? Because, you know, I definitely saw people talking about, well, you know, we suddenly are uh, going to have all these other events follow uh, soon after. But personally, kind of feel like it wasn't as it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be with a big earthquake in California. So here's a I, little bit of personal context is that one of my earliest childhood memories is sitting in Marin Headlands watching San Francisco burn after the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, which was the first televised earthquake. The earthquake happened during the World Series when the World Series was playing in San Francisco. So it was the first big event where the rest of the United States was suddenly seeing an earthquake in real time. And that had a massive impact going forward in how uh, People and culture talked about earthquakes and also in funding for earthquake preparedness in California of suddenly realizing this was a thing. Um, what I saw that was interesting about the Ridgecrest earthquake and the response to it is that we got very, very lucky. It was underneath Ridgecrest and not L.A. Um, in that if it had been underneath a large city with a lot of infrastructure and a big population density, we would have seen a lot more damage and a lot more fatalities. It's the Ridgecrest is low population density is a huge chunk of why this story is turning into something we can talk about somewhat objectively instead of having it be a massive trauma of disaster. Um, but it was close enough to LA and the geology of the Southern California with its great big, huge sedimentary basins was enough that the seismic waves were felt in LA and they were, they were small, um, some small in amplitude in that you could see shaking, you could feel shaking, you knew something was going on, but it wasn't enough to produce damage. But because it was a large magnitude earthquake, that shaking went on for a long time. So there was that aspect of it, of everyone in LA felt a, a long earthquake that was not big, which is confusing. Like that, that intuitively does not match up with the California experience. Um, and the second chunk was, it was the first time that had happened after the earthquake early warning systems 
were finally out of beta and were being tested with the public and they didn't go off. So there was this, it was not that the system failed. It's that the system expectations did not match public expectations in that the early earthquake early warning system did not go off because it was a small, a small amplitude shaking. It wasn't going to hurt anybody, but everybody felt it. So they expected to see it in their apps. And that was an interesting mismatch. And one that it's, again, it gets into that policy aspect, that human aspect of, it's not about the science there. The science all worked out. The engineering all worked out. The system worked perfectly. And yet the system completely failed because it didn't meet expectations and it eroded public trust. And and that I think is is going to be a big issue if if you warn people too frequently, they stop listening. And if you don't warn them enough, they don't trust it. So trying to find that middle road is I have beat my head on a desk sometimes here trying to figure out like even here in Ohio, where it's usually weather that might send out alerts, at what level do you warn people that they should go hide in their basement? Is it just for tornadoes? Is it for severe thunderstorms? If it's for severe thunderstorms, how severe? Because once you lose either the trust or lose the uh, the attention of the public, it's you're it's hard to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And as we've got uh, in the emergency response community, there's uh, an understanding the emergency managers don't retire. They eventually re- resign because they messed up. And that mess up could actually not even be a mistake at all. It could just be a loss of public trust. And that's a part of the career and it's painful, but it, it just is what it is. Here on the West Coast, we see it most frequently in terms of tsunami um, because we can tell when a tsunami was triggered uh, and we can track it moving across the ocean with the tsunami buoys, the, the dart buoys, but you don't actually know how big a tsunami is going to be until it comes on land. So we send out these tsunami notices and all the warnings, and we know exactly when it's going to start arriving. That physics is really well understood. And then the tsunami shows up, and it's three centimeters tall, and everyone goes, there's no tsunami! And you're going, there is. It's just not deadly, and you can't see it. But it's there, I promise. Please don't go swimming. That's still really strong current. And that's challenging. It's We also get the, the situation, we see this to bring it back to volcanoes. We see this with all these fears about will earthquakes trigger volcanoes or not. We had a whole series of um, earthquakes up and down the West Coast during the same time period as Ridgecrest. We had them in northern British Columbia. We had them in Washington State and we had them in Southern California, all within about two or three weeks of each other. And yet they were completely unrelated to each other. Like one set had nothing to do with the other. It just happens that there's a lot of earthquakes all the time. And once you've seen one big one, you start paying attention to more of them and it becomes newsworthy, even though it's not scientifically unusual. One one thing that we should definitely point out here is a, a more definitive list of what a big earthquake might trigger in the short term after it occurs. Uh, I think you one of them there is that they can trigger tsunamis. What else are we talking about? Uh, absolutely. They can trigger landslides as well. It's uh, You have a bunch of unstable slopes. The landslide is going to come down eventually, and the exact trigger of it can be anything from 
it weathered a little bit more and finally fell down to rain to earthquake shaking the hillside. Uh, we actually see also this kind of a slow effect of earthquakes and landslides, particularly in places like Haiti that get a lot of hurricanes where you have the earthquake, which takes an unstable slope and weakens it even further. And then as soon as the first heavy rains come, you get sometimes even hundreds of landslides all coming down at once. So it can be even a delayed effect. And then we have, of course, all of the aftershocks that come from a large earthquake. And those can happen for you know weeks afterwards, but they can also start the moment after whatever that f- first big earthquake uh, might have when it happened. So it's those, at least in my mind, those are the big three, right? Tsunamis, landslides, and, and other earthquakes. And giant volcanic eruptions are not on that list in my mind in terms of instant trigger after an earthquake. Yes, I am going to say that the aftershocks, its how long they happen for depends on how big the earthquake is. So for something like a magnitude 7, like Ridgecrest, they're actually still going to be getting aftershocks up through next year. It's just those earthquakes are going to be really tiny and they won't really notice them by then. So that's it's something we saw more dramatically in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, where there was the big earthquake directly underneath a large city with a significant population density, that they were feeling those aftershocks up to a year later, and it was still causing disruption. And getting to the human aspect, that turns into this situation where after a disaster, there's this emotional high, as everybody's feeling very heroic, they're having the survival high, we made it through, we helped each other out, we're awesome. Then it drops down into the low of this actually happened, I have to accept it and and deal with all the loss, and then slow recovery. Well, you you can't get to that recovery portion if you're constantly having another earthquake that sets you back and resets that emotional response and the recovery process. And liquefaction too. Oh yeah, we forgot about liquefaction in our hazards. Like there's there's a lot of things that happen after earthquakes. So liquefaction is a bit like having geologic oatmeal. If you take a bunch of saturated sediments and you shake them, then the sediments go all kind of goopy. And it's not that there's suddenly quicksand that's going to suck people up and kill them. It's that all the building foundations are no longer in solid ground and go kind of wonky. So it's not an immediate, this is a thing that will kill you. It's this is a thing that will make your building unlivable afterwards. I think it's also a really good distinction that I'll get you to explain. And I saw Brian Tubowish at the Washington Emergency Management Division talking about this, about how the magnitude between the Ridgecrest earthquake and the earthquakes, earthquake south of Seattle were very different, but the intensity was not what you'd expect. So can you explain quickly the difference between intensity and magnitude? So magnitude is how much energy an earthquake is releasing and intensity is how does it feel? And The magnitude is going to be one thing for an entire earthquake, that a magnitude 9 earthquake is a magnitude 9 earthquake, and it doesn't matter if you're measuring it at the epicenter where the earthquake is happening or if you're measuring it on the other side of the planet. It is a magnitude 9, that is how much energy has been released. But 
How severely you're going to feel the shaking can depend on a lot of factors. That can be from how far away from the earthquake are you. So the closer you are, the stronger it feels. It can be what type of geology are you on, that solid bedrock shakes less and sediment, particularly saturated sediment, shakes more, which is part of what happened in Los Angeles is it's a giant sedimentary basin. It's, it's a desert in between some mountains. And so when an earthquake comes through, it reverberates inside that basin and shakes and feels more shaking than you would if you were on solid rock. It can depend on the buildings that you're in, that a, um, a really tall building is going to sway back and forth. So you'll feel more shaking on the top story than you would on the ground floor. Uh, it can depend on how many other distractions you have going on. That if you're asleep and you're jolted awake by an earthquake, you're going to have a very different felt experience than somebody who is wide awake and paying attention in a quiet room waiting for an earthquake to happen. So all of these things can have uh, different intensities of what you feel. And that's part of why anytime there's an earthquake, we really want people to fill out these Did You Feel It reports. They're hosted by the USGS because it helps us better understand the the surface factor, factors, the variables, the human element of how are people experiencing an earthquake. To change our focus a little bit here, uh, away from the the earthquake side of things for a bit, you, uh, you mentioned something about... Uh, the fact that you're based in uh, British Columbia and that there are, in fact, multitude of volcanoes in Canada and they're all part of, not all, but they are, many of them are part of the Cascades, which sometimes you get the impression that the Cascades just end when you hit the Washington border with British Columbia. But that, of course, is not the fact. So do you want to talk a little bit about stuff you've you've thought about with uh, the volcanic hazards in Canada? Yeah, so there's a funny little quirk of Canada in that we don't monitor our volcanoes at all, which is concerning because we're in the Cascadia subduction zone, the same geology that leads to Mount St. Helens and Baker and Rainier are it's the exact same geology on the other side of the border. We're all getting the same potential of really big earthquakes. Um, one plate is going underneath another, which means that you can get those big earthquakes. You get that vertical motion on the faults, which can trigger tsunami. But you also have that oceanic plate is going down with all those water, all that saturated sediment that lowers the melting temperature. So you end up with um, a magma mush coming up and it picks up silica from the continental crust where silica is like glass and it traps gas. So you end up with these really violent eruptions like Mount St. Helens, but it doesn't follow political geography, right? It's geology doesn't pay attention to human borders. So you've got that same tectonic zone happening from Northern California, starting at like Lassen all the way up into Northern British Columbia. And we all have that same zone, but we only really pay attention to like the biggest, most charismatic volcanoes in Washington and Oregon. And we forget that there are these same volcanoes in Northern California and in British Columbia. One of the most disturbing parts of this right now is that we've got Mount Meager just north of Vancouver. It's about a three-hour drive north where we know it's 
got a lot of active geology. It's had two massive, massive landslides in the last couple of years. It used to have hot springs there until the landslides buried them repeatedly. And from doing the survey work for the landslides, we've started finding these areas where you have a little vent in the snow that's completely melted and gas is coming out. And you just look at that and go, wait a minute. This is a mountain that I know is volcanic that now has a hot little vent giving out gas. I think this is an active volcano, but we don't know. And we're not monitoring it. So (laughs) it's a little terrifying. That's a bit concerning. We talk about, you know, how volcanoes give us warning signs. They give us, uh, get, you know, the warning signs definitely are different for every single volcano and they can go on for days or weeks or months or years. But we're not going to catch those warning signals if we're not listening in the first place. Yeah. And this is one of the really frustrating parts about working in disasters in Canada is that it's a huge country, but a very tiny population density and a very small tax base to go with that. So our budgets are small, um, which is challenging enough, just working with smaller science research budgets. But we also had a prolonged period of time where our government was actively hostile to science um, and cut a large number of disaster jobs um, at all levels of government that just haven't been refilled now for about 15 years, where they're just empty positions. I do things like I contract for the Canadian government for 15 days a year to do all of the landslide work west of the Rockies, which if you think about it, having one person do all the landslide assessments for an entire third of the country um, in three working weeks is just not realistically going to get very far. And our volcano work is even more underfunded. So we have these things like we have fault maps from the USGS in the United States where the fault will very tidily end at the Canadian border, where we just haven't surveyed on the Canadian side. So we do these dashed lines of, We think there's a fault line here, but we don't know. Um, And we have these places where we're like, we think that's an active volcano. It'd be really nice if somebody funded some research grants to go out and look and, I don't know, maybe put up one seismic station, just anything to keep an eye on it. There, I was just looking here that there are young volcanic eruptions in northern British Columbia to the tune of happening 1,300 years ago. So, you know, again, most people don't think of Canada as a place that would have eruptions in the last few thousand years. But sure enough, you have little cinder cones that are forming uh, at the same, you know, the same time scales that we have the cinder cones down in Arizona and in uh, the Central Oregon Cascades, places where people are thinking that, yeah, these are volcanically hazard hazard areas. And it is definitely a little troubling to hear that they don't get closely watched in our northern neighbor. Canada is fairly recently colonized. Uh, So our written history is short. But First Nations have been in Canada for a very long time and have very strong oral histories that give us clues about what our natural hazards are. One of the more famous of these is the story of When the Mountain Walked, which is large landslides off of Frank uh, Turtle Mountain on the Alberta-BC border. 
Other ones are about the day the ground shook, which was the 1700s earthquake and tsunami that we've also managed to correlate down to exact timing based on Japanese tsunami records on um, dating ghost forests off the West Coast. But we can also do this with our volcanic eruptions. And I'm probably going to garble my pronunciation here, but the Nisaga Memorial Lava Bed in northern British Columbia um, is our most deadly volcanic eruption in that it wiped out and killed people who lived there um, who are a, a, it's a First Nations tribe that is still alive and still active and still has traditional territory there and are right next to this giant lava field that we think killed about 2,000 people. It's, again, it's from around 1700, so not that long ago at all. And we've got like a highway running through it. You can drive right through it and see this very recent, very devastating eruption. Uh, only 150 years ago, apparently, according to Natural Resources Canada, was the most recent Canadian volcanic eruption. So 150 years ago, that's like nothing. So that's that's a, a very telling sort of thing that although that hazard is definitely present, how much it is, I don't know, swept under the rug, so to speak. Maybe not swept under the rug, but at least ignored or either willfully or just due to ignorance, uh, even though there is definitely recent volcanic activity. Yeah. And I mean, one of the challenging things about doing geological work in British Columbia is that uh, we had an ice age that covered up everything um, right down to pretty much just over the U.S. border. We had the cast of the uh, Laurentide ice sheets um, and they pulled back about 15,000 years ago. Uh, but everything before then, it's like having a giant geologic sandpaper that goes through and starts erasing your geologic history. So huge chunks of it are just missing from that time period of the ice ages. Uh, but interestingly, we still have a bit of a volcanic a record from then because we had areas where volcanoes were erupting and coming in direct contact with ice sheets, which is made for some really, really cool geologic features. You know how you can get those hexagonal cracks, those cooling surfaces, um, like the devil's staircase or devil's post pile or the giant staircase or any of those. Um, and it's, it's the same physics behind why you get mud cracks or why if you take a cheesecake and you cool it too quickly, you don't have it in that water bath. It cools in the, the center first and it contracts and shrinks and pulls in the edges and that creates these hexagonal cracks. Well, we had that happening, but didn't just have lava exposed to air, but lava exposed to ice, which changes what your cooling surface looks like. So we have curving lava columns of, of these hexagonal columns, but bending and curving and reaching like certain points of, oh, that's where the ice was. So it's, it's pretty cool getting to do the detective work on trying to understand how those volcanoes and ice sheets interact. And there's, I don't know, maybe you know this more than I do, but I remember reading about Garibaldi, uh, the volcano up in British Columbia, and how that it was actually, some of its deposits were built on top of the glacier. And when the glacier melted, that whole side of the volcano slumped downward because it had been built, all of the debris had been built up on glacial ice uh, during the times of the eruption. So again, it's some of these ways that we can look at timing of events based on what we know about the ice sheets uh, and just show how active these things are. 
Yeah. And it's actually, so I highly recommend looking at Garibaldi on like satellite images, like from Planet Labs or Google or someone like that, because it is phenomenally clear what happened. You've got these beautiful, gorgeous lava flows that were on rocks. So you can still see them intact with like actual flow lines in there and the little levees around the outside of the lava flow that cooled first. But then you can also see where the ice sheets were because everything gets down dropped or in the more dramatic part, there's this sudden, giant, fantastically steep wall. And that's where the lava flow had run into the ice is the edge of a glacial valley that the ice has since melted away. And it is a really interesting location for landslides because it turns out when you have a ridiculously steep wall that was chopped away by ice and it's made of volcanics, which are kind of loose and rotten rock to start with, you get really big landslides. And a really big landslide came down there in the late 1800s. We can pin it down to within a couple of years because a survey team went through and there was no landslide. And the survey team went through again a few years later. I went, wait a minute, this is something happened here. Uh, but it was this massive landslide where from super elevation of the curves. So when um, something goes around a corner, it scoops up the outside like a race car on a track. It did that around the curb so we can actually get out the timing of this landslide and figure out how fast it was. And when we did that and we did the, the hazard analysis of this massive unstable slope, everyone kind of looked around at each other and went, uh-oh. Because there had been the start of a community getting built out at the bottom of this gorgeous, spectacular view. And they'd started building foundations and running some electrical wires and digging the, the ditches for plumbing and all of that. And then they realized there was this big looming hazard. And this is unique in Canada, where the government looked at the hazard assessments and went, although the individual risk of a landslide in a specific lifetime is low, it is almost guaranteed we will have a massive community-destroying landslide over the course of the community. So we're going to deem it too hazardous for anyone to ever stay the night here and bought back all the land and said, nope, off limits. You can hike here during the day, but that's it. No camping, no community, no building it out, nothing. So if you go there now, you can hike around and see the giant's open face of the unstable slope that will fail again. You can find the landslide deposit of the landslides that already happened, and you can find the abandoned infrastructure from the town that was never built. That is pretty spectacular. So go look it up on satellite imaging and see that and know that context. And all of it's happening at the base of a volcano that we aren't monitoring. What would you say for, let's say, the average West Coast citizen uh, would be a good way to, to be prepared for events of this nature in the future? Understanding local hazards is the most important thing you can possibly do, and that's going to change a lot depending on your community. We get uh, smaller earthquakes more frequently all over California that we get larger earthquakes less frequently in Northern California, all the way up through British Columbia, that we get fires every single summer and those fires are going to get worse and the smoke is going to keep getting worse. Um, that we have the potential for volcanic eruptions. Who is monitoring them? Where do you get that information from? 
what hazards do you have from it that there's a potential of lahar flows down into Tacoma near Seattle, which is a big city to talk about having a giant, super fast landslide from a volcano to come down. Um, Where's the ash fall radius? Because volcanic ash is teeny tiny particles of glass. It's not like fire ash that's annoying, but you can handle it. No, you'd actually be breathing glass. You don't want to do that. Um, To just look at what your local hazards are, and you can find that information out from um, the local community, finding out who those authorities are. You can do, everybody offers emergency uh, emergency volunteer training. Um, In the United States, there's the Neighborhood Emergency Response Programs are really phenomenal in how detailed they are. In Canada, we do things through Public Safety Canada. We'll have all of the information on how can you volunteer with your local group. I volunteer with my community and get that training and get that understanding of here's the hazards we're worried about here. Often cities will have information on their their um, websites or their other municipal information about not only what are their hazards, but what are their plans in place. Vancouver has a really neat one they've just rolled out. Um, understanding our climate risk is that we're going to keep getting hotter in the summers here. Um, We're going to keep getting colder in the winters. We're just going to go more extreme in both directions. It's terrible. And what infrastructure they're setting up for cooling stations, for warming stations, that they've installed better air filters onto some of our public buildings like libraries. Uh, So when the, the fire ash, when the smoke gets too bad in the summers, you can retreat to the libraries and have a cool, safe space to breathe, even if you don't have the money to do it to your own home. Um, so all of these things, you just go to your local community first. And then if you want to learn more after that, start looking at in the United States, is the U.S. Geologic Survey in Canada, it's Natural Resources Canada, are the scientific agencies that will give you even more information. And another really great one that I'll uh, point out is IRIS, I-R-I-S, um, for seismic information. They do so much great um, educational information and materials, and they're on Twitter, as with USGS is on Twitter, they also have a USGS underscore volcanoes account. UNAVCO has a lot of really great information. Um, and making sure you know who the organizations are in your area. So using the Pacific Northwest or Washington State, for an example. So you have the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, USGS. So USGS does volcanoes and earthquakes. And you also have the Washington Emergency Management Division. So those are your different places to get different sets of information. So what is actually happening with the earthquake or the volcano? And who do you go to to get logistical information? Like, should you be evacuating? What should you be doing next? So knowing who those people are, um, if you're on social media, following their accounts there where they can get more information out to you. And following your local advice is so critical with all of these different hazards. So that's a interesting thing in that um, people often know they should prepare for disasters, but get overwhelmed thinking about all the things they need to do to build a kit, to make a plan, to have all the water and all the food and get the first aid training and everything else. And they get so overwhelmed by doing everything that they get paralyzed and do nothing at all. Something you can do right now while the podcast is still going on is to take whatever social media platforms you use and track down those sources of verified information. So your municipal emergency management agency and officers, the local fire department and police department, the geologic surveys, the weather, uh, national weather services for your area, uh, all of those things, start following them on social media now 
so that when something happens, you already have that pre-screened and pre-verified information. The other thing I really like suggesting as a, a starting point of, I know I should do things, but I'm never going to get around to it. We did a big survey in British Columbia about why most people are not prepared for disasters and asked them, okay, you know you need to be. Why haven't you done it? Um, and the biggest factors are laziness, time, and money. Like, that's it. No I should do it. I can't make the time for it. I'm a little bit too lazy to get around to prioritizing it, and I'm broke. One way of dealing with that is to, when you're throwing a party, invite your neighbors. Because when something goes really, really wrong, anything from a house fire to an earthquake to a volcanic eruption, the very first people on scene aren't going to be firefighters or police or paramedics. It's going to be the people who are physically closest to you. So if you can have positive interactions with them now, it's a bit like putting coins into a piggy bank of building up goodwill that you can smash that piggy bank open and spend it when things are in crisis. And that can be anything from just getting to know your neighbors to know, oh, there's a little old lady down the block. I should check on her during severe weather to make sure she's okay. To, hey, my downstairs neighbor has little kids. If we're all being ordered to evacuate, I bet she could use another adult to help corral the kiddos from running down the street to full on if we have a huge earthquake some buildings are collapsing looking around and going that guy over there i know him and he's not out here on the street with us we should start digging in the rubble and go look for him we've seen the research on this that the more community connectivity you have the more events you do together the stronger your community resilience is during catastrophe and the better and faster your recovery is after disaster. So first steps for disaster preparedness, emergency preparedness, follow those agencies on social media and throw a party, invite your neighbors. Disaster parties. This should be a thing. Yep. They totally are. And that this is an amazing thing as well, is that for some locations, if you're throwing a block party, you can often invite the local emergency management agencies and they'll send somebody out to you if you've got a group of people and they'll train you on how to do disaster response together and how to rescue each other or how to help each other with kits. That this is a thing that you can totally do. And some places even have funding where they will sponsor you to have a block party and invite your neighbors and throw a party. I want one. Yeah. It's the best. It's totally the best. I wanted to ask uh, Mika one one last question, and uh, this is one that might be uh, familiar to some of you who follow her on social media. But what are your thoughts today on table salt? <laughs> uh, so all salt that you would ever eat is all halite. It's a particular mineral. It's sodium and chlorine. Uh, and it forms anytime you have um, evaporation. So you've got to have a saline solution and these will crystallize out of it. So you have a brine and, and the crystals grow out of it. Um, and you can have it happen in all sorts of different situations from a little temporary salty lake in the middle of a desert through to ocean water or people harvesting salt water and putting it somewhere to evaporate. So there's a lot of different ways you could get halite. Uh, my favorite part of it is that, yes, we think about salt as being the, the one rock that you eat, the mineral that you eat, but there's actually a whole bunch of lickable minerals. Uh, but there's also things like sylvite, which 
is a mineral nobody has heard of outside of geology. And yet most people have eaten because if you have ever had low sodium salt, it sounds like such a contradiction. But what that actually is, is 50% halite, 50% sylvite. So you've got um, sodium chloride and potassium chloride and they're getting mixed together. And for some people, it ends up tasting kind of bitter. I think it tastes sour and I like it. Uh, but you can lick those minerals and actually eat them. Did you ever imagine you'd spend so much time on Twitter talking about salt? Uh, I like talking about the lickable minerals. I have a lot of fun licking rocks overall. Um, what I didn't expect is how much time I'd spend talking about please don't lick the lava. Uh, I understand. It looks so smooth and beautiful and gooey, but you don't want to just dive right in. You don't want to lick it. It turns out it's really hot. Um, You are welcome to lick cold lava. I'm fine with that. Uh, I will warn you that if you lick the like flash frozen lava, otherwise known as obsidian or pumice, that is a glass. So you can lick it. It won't taste like anything in particular. And you might cut your tongue. So you could but you might not want to. I mean, speaking from experience with actual molten lava, I, I can't imagine how one would even get one's face close enough to then conceive of licking it because of the heat that that comes off of it. It would, it, it's, it's, again, it, watching it on TV, you make it, it, it does seem like a very pleasant and, and lovely thing. So red and, and orange and, and, uh, gooey, but standing next to it, even standing within like, I don't know, five meters of it, the heat was so incredibly intense. Uh, even for somebody who's thinks about lava a lot, that was one of the things that struck me was this is hotter than I even imagined. So yeah, licking it, uh, probably not something that you could even probably physically do, let alone uh, find yourself desiring to do at the time. And that is not a challenge. We do not recommend here on Popular Volcanics anyone get close enough to lava to lick it. <laughs> yeah, aside from the heat, just the whole toxic gas thing. Personally, I'm all in favor of living. It is my primary ambition is to live. Wow, me too. Uh, and licking lava is a great way to die. So <laughs> I'd just rather not. And, and on that note, we will wrap this up by saying, please, listeners, don't die. Don't die. Rule number um, one today. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to thank Mika for coming to talk to us here on Popular Volcanics. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? I think don't die is a pretty good ending line. Let's <laughs> <laughs> live! Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode number two of Popular Volcanics. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mika McKinnon. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com backslash popular volcanics and support the podcast at various levels, just like Ed Vensky and Matt Johnson have done in the last month. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pop Volcanics and find the podcast on a whole bunch of different sources now, not only at our original Buzzsprout account, but also find us on iTunes and Spotify and iHeartRadio. So you can find us in a lot of places. And we thank you to the over a thousand listens we have gotten in the first month on our first episode on Yellowstone that came out at the beginning of July. You can also check out our website with all the links from this episode at popularvolcanics.weebly.com. And that will give you all the information you want to find that we talked about during this episode. So we will be back in about a month. See you then.